the middle class is arriving in the music industry and the big, big elite upper class is pretty much dead. All the major labels back in the heyday had 500 artists each, but only 25 of them made any money. So you, you had a 5% chance of making it after you got the record deal and a 95% chance of not making it. Now, much more even numbers. Joining us this week is podcaster, producer, marketer, and all-around music industry whiz, Johnny Dwinell. Johnny started out as a musician performing in hair metal bands, but he pivoted to focus more on the business and marketing side, developing artists through his own company. Today, he is not only a co-host on The Climb podcast, but he also runs Daredevil Production, where he helps artists with their digital marketing. He has worked with multi-platinum artists like Colin Ray, Tracy Lawrence, Ty Herndon, and more. Johnny joins us to discuss the state of the industry and how the landscape is evolving on this episode of The Big Break. Johnny, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining the show. Good, Anthony. How are you? I am doing well, doing very, very well. So uh, where, are you, uh, where are you joining us from today? Where are you located right now? Nashville, Tennessee. You're in Nash Vegas, I hear. Okay, Nash that's Vegas, cool. that's, that's right. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways I normally start off this show with normal first questions and whatnot, but I, I, this, is, this is one I got to ask that's a little bit more unique. I, I was sent your, your little bio sheet uh, by my producer uh, a couple weeks ago uh, when we were getting started, and I got to ask, I got to say that I love the photo you're sitting there in a t-shirt with a drink in your hand this big <laughs> grin on your face so i got it what's what's in the glass that's the first thing that's the first thing i gotta ask you what's in the glass <laughs> well that picture that i sent you was from taken july 2nd which is my birthday okay and i ended up having an all-day uh photo shoot with one of my artists and so I, I was working all day. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to get something my damn self. So what's in that glass is Balvany 14-year-old Caribbean cask scotch. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. And I had a, a brilliant photographer and my artist was brilliant and very, very uh, adept at photo shoots. So it was kind of like after the first... 20 minutes it was like okay i'm just gonna be here and hang out and be a cheerleader i don't have to direct any traffic so it's good no, no, as soon as i open that up i'm like this is gonna be a good podcast i think we're gonna have fun today it's, it's a little early in the day for me for any drinks right now but i just i just had to know well the reason i ask is that in the photo it looked a little green and i'm like belvany's not green but whatever this just might be the the way it came out or was transferred yeah it might have been like the that. way it came out definitely uh Balvin in there that's what was that's going cool. on that, that, yeah, that was my the, birthday present to myself that's the rum that's, I'm sorry, that's the scotch is aged in old rum casks, I believe, right? Yes. And I got like one of my, uh, one of the climbers on our podcast who is uh, a great artist, uh, him and his manager had just done a consult with me. He's from Ireland and, uh, or I think it's Ireland. I don't think it's Scotland. I think it's Ireland. But he, uh, as as a thank you for the conversation that we had, they sent me that bottle. They turned me on to to that. So um, now it's become a thing. I like it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. I'm a big fan of it. Um, so now I normally start off just lately with our current environment, just asking how have you been managing the whole situation, as they say, right? The stay at home and stuff. Have you been affected? Are you been oh, adjusting? We've been affected, but in a positive way. Like, um, there's been several industries and uh, a lot of artists who have been forced to pivot 
into digital marketing and it's sort of, um, you know, they didn't have a choice. And so we've been preaching that for, for four years and, and, um, now, now some people are starting to, hey, let's do something, let's do something. So Yeah, well, let, let me take a step back. So I just want to note this. So this is this will be a little bit of a different interview in that, you know, most of the time on this podcast we're talking with the um, songwriters, performers, things like that. You have been in that role, but your current role is more in an artist support uh, uh, role, I guess. If, tell me if I'm wrong on that. How about let you just describe real quickly what you're doing now? Yeah. Okay. So um, I own Daredevil Production, and we, for lack of a better term, are uh, uh, label services, or you could call it an artist development company. And so some of our artists need um, creative development, where we get them with the right producers, the right songwriters. If if I'm the right appropriate artistic pair of pants, I can produce it. If I if I fit. And also if I have the time and I still do that occasionally, um, but usually I'll use that cachet to, you know, maintain and create relationships around town. Um, the, all of our artists need market development and really the meat and potatoes of what we do is architecting, uh, digital. We're trying to break artists digitally is what we're trying to do. And everybody knows about digital, thinks about digital, talks about digital, but nobody in the industry really understands digital, or let's say very few do. We're one of the few that really do. Um, you know, although from, from the major labels on down, they, they are, these are industries, this is an industry and industry people who were born on broadcast platforms. And the digital platform is so... 180 degrees opposite of the way it's consumed and how it works that we find ourselves in this huge, in the middle of this huge vacuum. Um, I, I like to tell people, you know, for the elevator pitch, it's just think about what Amazon knows about you. They know your name. They know your email address. They've got multiple credit cards, multiple shipping addresses. They know what you purchased and they know what you thought about purchasing, but you chose not to buy. And then they've got that cookie in there. So if you don't buy all of a sudden that product, you know, it shows up on every single website you go to. It's in your email. It's in your Facebook feed. It's everywhere. And then I ask them, and these are artists I'm talking to. You ever bought a CD before? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, what does Sony, Warner Music, and Universal know about you? And there's a pregnant pause. And they're like, Nothing. And I'm like, yeah, there's the vacuum that we're filling. <laughs> okay. All right. So are, so are your clients, are your clients um, artists who are without a label or are they independent labels that need to outsource this particular skill set? How, how would you break that down? Uh, it depends on mostly it's independent artists. Sometimes we'll get, um, we'll get, we'll work with a label on a particular project or something, but that's very few and far between. We find that, um, uh, and, and here's kind of the trend right now, which is, I mean, I've had about five conversations this week about this specific thing with frustrated artists and managers who uh, the labels typically going to want to go with their team, which makes sense. Um, you know, we want to use our guy and all the labels, as far as I can tell, or at least in, in my experience, Anthony have, mm -hmm. they have a guy that's doing digital marketing, but it's an industry guy that came from broadcast marketing. So they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> it's very clear with the strategies and everything that they're doing. They're trying to put, um, you know, brilliant broadcast 
strategies and make that work on digital marketing, and it doesn't. Uh, at least not for a, a, an emerging artist. You know, the game changes, and 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 the, and the the water's muddy because if you think about it from a label head perspective and in an upper echelons of the industry perspective, these are brilliant people that have done brilliant work, and they had all these artists that have accumulated massive amounts of of fans and they, they've accumulated their audiences on broadcast platforms. And then we invented social media. So all those people flooded over to the digital platform and it, in it, from the perspective of the label, that social media platform walks and talks and smells like a broadcast platform. But that's because, you know, if you look at the feed of any artists, like, you know, Taylor Swift or whatever, it, it, or any major label artist, it's, it's, Look at me, 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 look at me. And that works for them because they have millions of fans. So that content is relevant and personal to them because of how they were connected to the artist. But when you're trying to break an artist on digital, I mean, think about this, Anthony, like, I don't know if you're single or married, but when you were a single guy, if you saw a girl on it, had an Instagram feed and it was like duck face, duck face, duck face, duck face, <laughs> duck face, duck face, like you immediately begin to make some assumptions, right? <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's a tricky kind of situation and what worked again on broadcast doesn't work on digital. So we are addressing that and we're blessed to have, uh, you know, enough artists that, understand it to a, to a degree, or at least trust us to a degree and trust me to a degree that they'll play in the sandbox as we cook up some different ways to, to, to execute what's essentially the same formula for blowing up an artist brand, which is just get the art in the artist in front of new eyeballs and let them do their thing. Uh, but the game's changed, you know, now people get to decide what they're going to see. And so we have to keep them interested and they're not, they're always going to choose familiarity, you know? All right, so I want to get into how how you uh, came to to do this, and we're going to go way back. Okay, uh, we're you know, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, everyone who's involved in digital marketing, like you, started off as a uh, performing rock and roll band, correct? Yes, sir. <laughs> That's all I ever wanted to do. <laughs> That's what you were doing. But I, I bring it up is because it's a little bit uh, different in that is that you actually were in the shoes of the people that you're that you're trying to help now. But like you, you started off as an as, as an artist. You were you were in a band. Yes. Uh, just, just, why don't you, you know, take us into the Wayback Machine a little bit and tell us about the band and how you got started into music. In fact, even before the band, how, how did you get how'd you get into music originally? You know, it, 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 I didn't come from a musical family in any way, shape, or form, but my parents loved music. Um, some of my earliest memories are watching my dad just freak out over the uh, Hot August Night record from Neil Diamond, which is still to this day one of my favorite albums, you know. Um, so I just I got into it. I, I I loved it. I loved the reaction that he had to it. I mean, he was really he would freak on that. He just loved it. And they took me actually. I grew up in Wisconsin. Where was Wisconsin? Uh, southeastern Wisconsin in Lake Geneva, Delavan Lake. <laughs> I'm from Kenosha. Stop it. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm dead serious. I learned how to ski at the old Playboy Club in Lake Geneva. Dude, we have a lot of mutual friends. Do you know Mike Stone? 
Mike Stone, maybe. I've been gone for a very long time, so my, well, my memory was, is shot. I can't remember the guy's name, but I, I used to love. I used to take guitar lessons uh, at a uh, not from from Mike Stone, who was in like Geneva, but from right. um, there was a guitar teacher in Kenosha at the music store there, and that guy with the beard. I can't remember his name, but he was fantastic. He was a great guy, and I used to get good deals on stuff from him. But I was in Kenosha a lot. There was a, there was that. a there was a record. Oh God, this is getting way off topic but we got to get into this now there was a record there was a, a music store and music school in kenosha run by i forgot the name of the store but the guy the guy who owned it ran it, his name was frank feldudo if it was the real freaky part about all of this is that he was my high school journalism teacher when i uh, was editor <laughs> of the of the school paper so now i am completely freaked out at, at well, the moment. well now let's go down deeper down there because the next thing i was about to say was i'm sure that you've seen plenty of concerts at alpine valley when you're alpine up. valley was the my first concert was uh boston at alpine valley so my first concert my parents took me to see neil diamond when i was eight okay and that's, I mean, as crazy as this sounds, when I saw him walk out there, that was the moment. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I get it yeah. now. I just I just totally understood it. But I freaking love okay. Alpine Valley, dude. Yeah. That's great. No, Alpine Valley, was a, I mean, I saw, I could go on and on and on, but the one that we sticks were, out. I, was, I, I promise you we were at a lot of the same concerts, my man. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I think we're in the, in the same age group as well. Uh, Motley Crue and White Snake at Alpine Valley, where Tommy Lee did the drum solo, where it spun around in the, in oh, yeah. the, in the pyrotechnics. In the I, was I, was there. There. I was there. I was there. And, and um, how about the Motley Crue concert where they filmed uh, Same Old Situation, the video? With uh, Bob Rock, or not Bob Rock? It was uh, he's a producer. I was I was only at that one with where when White Snake opened for him and whatnot. So, okay, uh, I've been so, so many concerts there. A, there. So oh, great. Exactly, that's great. Well, that's really really funny. I mean, people, and just to give everyone else a quick, uh, not, you know, we're kind of geeking out in the hometown here, but like Lake Geneva. I mean, there was a legit recording studio there. I mean, Smashing Pumpkins recorded their albums in Lake Geneva, I believe. Yeah, or at least one um, of their, their first Skid Row recorded yep. their first record there. Um, uh, Guns and Roses has done some recording there. Phil Collins. It was a major, major, major studio. I got a funny story about that studio too. I'll tell you, that's really hysterical. But okay, so um, my goodness, I can't believe I didn't put this together before. So we are from the same mistake from on the, the lake ship. area. You're from exactly, the mothership. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's so great. That's so great. Okay, so you, so you grew up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Yeah, and obviously, uh, some bands, and, and you know the recordings. How, how did the how did the how did the band thing come together? Like we were high school was it after high school? High school, well, how, how yeah. We started we started in like eighth grade. I mean, seventh or eighth grade, we got the first band together. We were terrible, but that a version of that band is what kind of got what kind of launched my career. So we had built up through high school, and in high school, we were doing two gigs a week by the time I was like a junior in Milwaukee. So we'd be, you know, coming back at four o'clock in the morning and having to get up and go to school again and just kind of working it. We were trying to break into T.A. Vern's. If you remember T.A. Vern's, like that was the big club that was always on the radio. And to us, that was going to be success. And the, the owner was a jerk and we just, it was just so difficult getting in there. And then one time, uh, we I finally get a call from somebody bails out. He's like, Hey, do you guys want to come up and open up for this band hurricane Alice? And I said, yeah. And so now at this time I'm a guitar player in the band. I'm not the front man yet. 
And uh, we were doing really, really heavy stuff. So we had a singer that could really do like the Jeff Tate thing, the Rob Halford thing, the, yeah. you know, uh, you know, Iron Maiden and with authority and power and pitch and, and a killer singer, uh, a horrible personality and just a, 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 a brain dead like he couldn't perform to save his life, but he could sing. Okay. <laughs> but we, um, we opened up for this band, Hurricane Alice, which happened to be, we had no idea who they were. And this is 19, late 80s, uh, 1988, maybe, um, 80, yeah, about 88, I guess. And at that time, Purple Rain had come out in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, the Twin Cities were a hot spot for rock and roll. There's like seven clubs paying AAA money in Minneapolis and there was this huge booking agency out of there called ARM and they were a big regional booking agency and Hurricane Alice was one of the two top bands in the Twin Cities area the other one was called Slave Raider so Hurricane Alice comes down to uh, Milwaukee we're opening up for them we don't know who they are we've never seen them we're clueless to the thing but we are crushing it on stage with our you know we're doing some Queensryche we're doing some some uh, Judas Priest and we're doing absolutely everything that nobody else is doing. Everybody else is smarter than us and doing top 40, <laughs> but we weren't, we were doing the heavy stuff. And they, I just remember these long hairs off the side of the stage, just kind of sitting there with their jaws open, like, wow. And when we got done, we go back into the dressing room to clear out and it was the band. And they just like, you guys are amazing. You got to come open up for us in Minneapolis uh, on Christmas day night. And so that kind of started the relationship with, um, with the booking agency. We got the opportunity to go out on, on the road and we disappeared for like a year and got, you know, cut our teeth, got, got our chops and, and did the Midwest and, and, Canada circuit. So uh, after one year, we we the, the, we just couldn't take the singer anymore. He was just too much of a pain in the arse, and um, we we you know we fired him, and the band kind of started to fall apart. And I just went to the guys, and I, you know we had a killer. I mean, our drummer is Jamo is amazing. He's played with Eric Clapton now, the Allman Brothers. Like he's he's a, he's sick with it. And I went to him and the guitar player and just said. I, you know what? This guy can't perform. I can perform. I can't sing like he can sing. I can't even sing close to like he can sing. I'm not even the same planet as he is because it's just much more of a David Lee Roth kind of a thing versus mm -hmm. a, a vocal precision kind of a thing. But I'm going to take this over. Come with me. Don't come with me. It's up to you. Let's, and they're like, we're with you. And so as soon as we made that switch... We spent a summer working in Lake Geneva and uh, I got a loan like for a few thousand bucks from my dad and we bought like an eight track recording unit and uh, one of those Tascam cassette eight tracks and uh, a couple other pieces of gear and we just started writing, uh, started writing songs. And so uh, over that summer, we were writing them and we were recording them on this, on this eight track and making Every possible cardinal sin that you could make with recording, we nailed them all <laughs> multiple times. And so you brought up that big studio in Lake Geneva. We had a friend that was an engineer there, and uh, we asked him if he would come and help us mix this tape. And uh, we took some convincing. He was kind of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And then finally, he's like, oh, how bad could it be? And so he comes down to the basement to try to help us mix this tape. And right off the bat, he's just yelling at us like, you printed reverbs? What are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> anger, anger, anger. And I'm like, I'm sorry. We don't know. Just mix it. But the songs were decent. And <clears throat> the recording wasn't great, but he cleaned it up a lot. <clears throat> and um, 
And so then we were just, now we had the next step. What are we going to do for the next step? So at this point in time, one of our really dear friends from Lake Geneva happened to be dating uh, Bud Snyder, who at that time was in the Allman Brothers camp. And he was front of house for Allman Brothers. He also owned Telstar Studios down in Sarasota, Florida, which was where the Allman Brothers would do all of their pre-production before they go to Criteria with Tom Dowd. And Bud was... Uh, he engineered a lot with Tom Dow, but he always engineered Greg's vocals. So it was Tom and Bud in the, stu- in the studio with Greg for a boatload of those records. And she said, can I, you know, can I pass this on to, to my friend Bud Snyder? And I didn't really know anything about uh, the Allman Brothers that much, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Like, I knew Greg married Cher. That was my extent. Of, I'm in a hair bands, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, and this is kind of a funny thing too. It's weird how things turn out, but she was a total artist. She had done a lot of artwork for the Allman Brothers with the mushroom and stuff like that. But she's one of those artists, Anthony, that it only thinks out of like that one side of her brain, the creative side, and everything else is oblivious to her. So um, she sends this tape, like literally two days later, I get a call like one o'clock in the morning, right? I'm at my parents' house <laughs> and it's Bud Snyder. And he's like, Hey man, um, listen, uh, Vanessa sent me this tape. And he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm having some trouble kind of hearing it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Now my nerves are already shot from the last engineer that, you know, was cranking on me because of the, the sucky recording that we did. <laughs> and so I'm like, no, I get it. He's like, I don't think you understand. It's kind of hard to hear. Like, I get it. No, I know we, sh- we could have done better. We printed the reviews. Like, no, I don't think you understand. And I'm just like, I, I, I just won't let go. And finally he's like, Johnny, shut up. I'm like, what? He goes, Vanessa dubbed the tape. <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure she did it on a, one of those boom boxes with two cassette decks and she left the, the mic on. So there's people oh, walking around goodness. talking and stuff. He's like, could you send me a better version of that tape? Cause I'm liking what I'm hearing. And I was like, what he can hear, he likes, <laughs> yeah, but he yeah. just can't hear all of it. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh, absolutely. So, so I shoot that down to him. So then, um, I'm bartending in Lake Geneva at a restaurant called Cafe Calamari that I helped open up. And the owner of that bar owns a couple bars around town. And they got this one on Highway 50, um, kind of in between Williams Bay and Lake Geneva that they just bought for the land, but it still had a liquor license. And this is so Wisconsin, right? And, I know, it's like Highway 50. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, and it was this, this little, it was like a dump of a bar, but they bought it for the land, but it had the liquor license. So he would keep it open and it didn't have to make a whole lot of money uh, because they had other plans for it. But we would go in there, Daryl and I, my guitar player would go in there on Tuesday. Tuesday, and when the owner would be bartending and just get lit up, you know, because he would give us killer deals. And we happen to be sitting in there, and there's these two other guys in the bar. We get talking about music, and all of a sudden he's like, "Well, I got a recording studio," and we're like, "Really?" And and this is the strangest story, Anthony. But this cat had a Mitsubishi X880. It's one of the first digital tape recording machines, and it's about the size of a washing machine. It cost about four or five hundred thousand bucks, man. And he had it in his freaking garage. <laughs> so we, uh, we, you know, we went out to the car. He listened to the demo, and he was like, "You guys are great. We got to start working." And so then. Uh, it just sort of worked out that I, I don't know if this thing with Bud would have worked out had it not been for this intervention because we were, um, you know, Bud calls back. He's like, hey, what's going on? We're like, hey, we got this guy's going to record with us. He's got a mix of BC X880 and, and blah, blah. And so that was a big deal. And all of a sudden, Bud's, he comes up. 
he comes up to Lake Geneva and he's like, really? yep, he flies in. He's like, well, I'm going to produce it. Okay, we'll go and we'll see what happens with this. So we go to this guy's studio. Now, the only thing nice he has is that Mitsubishi X880. He's got like a Soundcraft live board, you know, and a bunch of crappy mics. But we had enough to, to try to piece together like a really decent demo, which we did. And we were going to go into Royal Recorders, which was that big recording studio that was right. in the Playboy Club, and, mm -hmm. and mix it. Now, we put ourselves into a corner here unknowingly because at that time, there was just a few really high-end recording studios on the planet that had those machines, right? If This wasn't like two-inch tape where I could bop in and out of any place I wanted to. So the only place we were going to mix that damn thing was at Royal Recorders. And the the night before we were supposed to go in there, and we literally, at this point, Bud's like, you guys need to come down to Florida, and we need to do some more recording down there. So we had set everything up to move. We were We were in three days, we were going to leave immediately after mixing this tape and head down to Florida. And the owner of the, or not the owner, the, the, uh, the manager of the studio calls me and tells me, ah, oh, yeah, we're going to bump you guys. Cause we got some really big people coming in and we got to do some maintenance on the board. And I was like, what? And he just was really condescending and kind of terrible to me. And, you know, one of the lessons my dad taught me growing up was you're going to meet an a-hole like that every single day of your life. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? You know, so um, do you know Lake Geneva, those towers that are right on the lake, right by Popeye's there? And uh, I, I stretch my memories, man. I was only really up there in the winter skiing. Okay. Okay. So there, there's this like, it's the only like kind of tower, like at the time in Lake Geneva, to these condos right now, the owner of this recording studio is, he's a, he bought us kind of, he bought his way into the music business. He's a big diamond broker, but this is the cat that produced like the Nuff's Enough record. Okay. Okay. And, uh, he owns two condos in that building and he is the black sheep of the HOA because as you can imagine, he's got a lot of rock bands coming in there and there's all kinds of crazy crap that's happening. <laughs> like, you know, you know, couches on fire being thrown out the window and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> the, and so, the, the full, the full stereotypes going on right now. The it's, full it's, it's stereotype. The, yeah. And so at house, Wisconsin. Now we have no idea that this is the case, but um, he had made arrangements for Bud to stay in one of those condos because we were going to mix. This is before we got bumped. So um, we're going to go over and tell Bud that we got bumped and we can't mix it and try to figure out like, where are we going to go? Because we had to have that specific machine to make it work, you know? So our choices were limited. So we literally get in the elevator and we're going to go up and, and Daryl and I have had a couple of drinks and Daryl decides to, to moon the camera because there's a camera in the elevator like a security and, camera. Yeah. And that's how you buzz somebody up, like to make uh, the elevator work, the people that, but we, you know, we didn't know how this worked. We'd never been in that building and everybody can see the camera. <laughs> so literally all of a sudden the owner is under fire and he was on his last leg. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. They're going to kick him out of the condos. And so he comes back to me going, Hey Johnny, I, I'm at, I'm at the champs down there in main street in Lake Geneva having a cocktail. And he comes walking and he's like, Hey, I need you to do me a favor. I'm like, you, you need me to do you a favor. I just got bumped from your studio, bro. Where else am I going to mix this stuff on that X80 machine? You know? Mm -hmm. And he's like, I need you to write a letter to the HOA and tell him that you have no association with me and, and that, that it wasn't my, my, yeah, my they, they was, right, right. and I'm like, no, 
And he's like, come on. I'm like, you get me in that studio for three days and let us mix this and I'll consider it, you know? And he made it happen. He, he turned the tables. We got in there. We wrote the letter, got it mixed, and then ended up down in Florida. And Right. And so all these things are working for you. I mean, you, you've had a couple of setbacks. You have a, you know, lead singer switch is never easy. You know, a lot of running around trying to get things recorded and things like that. But you've got some, you know, real names, you know, backing you. you got Bud in Florida helping you out, things like that. What what ends up happening with the with with the band? I mean, why why did it? Why did you not continue down that path? Um, well, it wasn't our choice. It was um, Nirvana, right? <laughs> so Sorry. we went down. We we ended up going down there. Uh, we we toured for I don't know, like five years, six years, and. I mean, we got really, really, really good. And we were talking with Warner Brothers, Rob Caballo at Warner Brothers, and we had like the secret codes that you used to have to put wow. on the on the on the envelopes and going back. He would send us music of stuff he just signed. And what do you think about this? We haven't released it yet. And we would send him some live stuff that we were doing. And we were, you know, creating that relationship, laying down the railroad track to to get to a deal and then that Nirvana record just blew up, and oh, cool. so and, I think you said so that everybody. killed your genre basically. Like you were yeah. in sort of that that hair. I, I don't mean this uh, in any way in a bad way, but like the hair metal sort of. Uh, I I, remember, I was right in all that. Right, it was it was it switched very very distinctly from one way of doing rock to a completely different way of doing rock. And yeah. everything that was before that just ended. And, yeah, and that's what happened. Okay. Yes, that's what happened. Like, like I, the, here's the way I put it. Like, the, they lifted up the, the needle on the record, and we didn't have a chair. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. So then, what did you? So then you 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 made a hard left turn. Then you got into business. Did you go to school? Did you go to university or anything no, like that? Or okay. no, well, I went to one year of college, and then I just I got the opportunity to go on that first tour uh, with ARM, mm-hmm. and I just was like, I'm out of here. Like, this is what I need to be doing. And so I, I'm down in Florida, and uh, I remember being on on vacation actually with my family in Hawaii and I'm with my manager at the time and we're just lying on a beach and that's where it hit me. Like, I can't believe it. But I, at this point we're booked out like, I think like six or seven months straight. And I'm like, I, I, this is my baby, right? This is my baby. This is what I've been doing since sixth grade. And I got to quit. Like this isn't going to work anymore, you know? And I wasn't the kind of, uh, the, the expert, you know, talented musician enough to pivot to another sort of thing. And, and to me, like we saw a lot of bands down in Florida that were hair bands. And then all of a sudden they were wearing like, you know, combat boots and flannel shirts trying to do the Seattle thing. And we're like, and, and this and, wasn't going to work yet. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, like, like, dude, you're in yeah. Florida. Like it's hot down here. What are you doing? You know? Right. And so I kind of had a bad taste in my, not the Seattle thing. I love that, but just people trying to pose as something else. And I didn't right. want to do that. That's kind of who I was. So I, um, I, I, here's another like very serendipitous thing. I, I, I had to get a sinus operation. My my sinuses were screwed since I'm a little kid, and um, I had to go and get some major surgery done. My parents were like, "Just come home, get it done here, so we can watch you regroup, and then you figure out what you want to do." So, exactly halfway between Sarasota, Florida, and Lake Geneva is Nashville, Tennessee. So I'd heard so much about it from Warren Haynes and the guys in the Allman Brothers that it was very curious to me. So I stopped off there. I stayed in this little, um, what was a Motel 6 right off a of Harding Place there on 24. And I, this is bananas, but I just took the Nashville scene, which is like the local rag. I, I went looking for a writer's night because I, I was interested in the songwriter thing, I thought at the time. And 
I, I picked this place called the Courtyard, which is in a mall. It's like a, you know, kind of a, a, a dumpy little strip mall kind of a bar. But it was a very cool bar. I don't mean to make it sound bad, but this is not a big fancy thing. It's a Monday night. And I go to this. I have a drink. There's three guys up on stage singing. I have no idea who they are, but I know every single freaking one of their songs. They're all country songs, and I don't listen to country. What does that tell you? You know, I, they were all like number one hit songwriters. Earl Bud Lee was one of them, Friends in Low Places. And I was like, this is what happens on a Monday night in Nashville? <laughs> like, okay, I got to be here. So I, uh, I like, that was the summer of uh, 94. And by December 30th, I had moved to Nashville. I didn't know a soul, but I didn't care. This is where I, I knew this is where I needed to be. And um, I just kind of got into the writing thing. I, I worked at, um, there used to be a, a steakhouse here called the Stockyard. I don't know if it's still here anymore, but it, had, it was literally a stockyard building that had, you know, 1800s building where the, and a bullpen underneath where all the bulls would go. And that there was a bar called the bullpen. I bartended there. And the, 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 the house band was ridiculous. I mean, it was owned by Buddy Killen, who owned Tree Publishing, which was like Elvis's publishing and stuff like that. So this dude was multi-multi-millionaire. And there was just so much talent going in and out of there. I made a lot of friends. And quickly kind of realized, if you're being the front man in a hair band, that the culture change from doing that to being a songwriter was a little underwhelming. <laughs> sure. So, so I got into business. I, 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 I started doing some sales stuff, which I didn't realize that I was good at, but I was really good at. I, was I, 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 this doesn't shock me at all uh, in the half an hour <laughs> that we've been talking. It's, I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's obvious. I own it. It's, it, listen, it's a gift. But I had an opportunity to go out to Los Angeles um, and get into the electronics industry. And, work. and so th this kind of starts to formulate the 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 stepping stones to the dots that I connected to under to be able to understand what's happening right now. So I go out to California. This guy is he's an electronics manufacturer who makes this walk on water soldering product. Okay, so you know just in in less than fifteen seconds, soldering irons are derivative of wood burning tools, and they're putting these things on half a million dollar boards in the aerospace industry and on really really expensive prototypes in the electronics industry. You know the first you know five iPhone boards on the next rev that they do of an iPhone are really, really expensive because they only made five. You know, it gets a lot cheaper when they make a million of them at a time. So this guy had a zero damage soldering system and it was this amazing new technology. And uh, I got to, uh, I, I own the whole West Coast. I developed a list of 3,300 engineers and prototype labs and the top technology companies and the top dot-com companies in aerospace. I mean, I was in places that require background checks and stuff and different levels of security to get through and, you know, defense contractors and stuff like that. <clears throat> and this is where I learned the power of the list because at, I was an autonomous company. I didn't work for this company. I worked with this company, but I was crushing it with this guy's product. I was like 50% of his sales just by myself. And uh, at a trade show and because because of the way the 
the nature of the product that he had, we would do live demos at your normal boring trade show, but I'm putting a chip on and taking a chip off a circuit board at the same spot for three days in a row with zero damage and people are freaking out. So with the performance thing that I got, and I'm not afraid to, you know, to, to yell it out and scream it from the trees, our booth, our little 10 foot booth would be four deep with like propeller head PhDs and electronics waiting to get up to the front to see what we were doing. It was like a circus and we would just get boatloads of leads and this other company that was a uh, circuit board design company right one step before they go to manufacturing which is what after they go to manufacturing they go to market or they go to the prototype labs uh, and they saw me and they're like and they were an east coast company from frederick maryland and they're like that's the guy that's got to rep us so they took me out to dinner and long story short they just ended up saying hey um you know, we want you to work with us. We want to, we want to work with you. And so uh, that happened like right in like 2001. So it was like the cyclical recession plus the dot-com crash plus the terrorist attacks. And my, the, the president of the electronics company that I was working with, who's still a dear friend and a mentor of mine panicked because of all this. And so he, he paid me really, really well. It was a hundred percent commission and he lowered my percentage a little bit, but he cut his prices and his pricing, the, the, the combined total was like a 50% pay cut to me. And so these guys came in and said, Hey, we want to hire you. We'll give you a stinky check for that list. And then we'll pay you an executive salary plus commission to work it. So I did that. As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties that were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. So that was where you realized, I think you started off by saying the power of the list a little, a little bit. List. Like you, you realize how that can, and that can be applied. So I want to condense a few things here because I got a ton of questions about what you're doing now okay. as well. Yeah. I, and, and not, not, I mean, I, I think that's, that's a great way to start this next part of the, of the conversation here because you've, you've, you've been in music. Now you've been in business. You're seeing the power of, of, you know, having a list and how to, you know, how to work context, things like that. I know you did some other things. You got into the mortgage business, I think a little bit and yeah. some time mm-hmm. on, on that. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about something specific here in a second, but uh, things go South, right? Yes. Uh, yes. The, the market goes the way South. Yeah. Very South. You're left, you're, you're back to square zero basically. Yep. And is that when you decide to get back into music? And I, I'm, I'm asking, cause I have a very, like, I'm sort of fast forwarding a little bit here, but I know I just want to quickly tell us about, you know, what happened there. And then I'd like to know when you, how did you decide to go from 
when you're at that vulnerable point to go back into something as seemingly to the outside world insecure as music, as opposed to going back to something that's seemingly more familiar and secure like business. So, so yeah, I got in the mortgage industry and I had built up like a really killer little job, like a killer little business. So we worked for a table funder, but I, had built up a recording studio in my house, a private recording studio, and we were doing radio shows on uh, about mortgages on there. So I went from making 150 cold calls a day to getting 100 calls a week from people who heard me on the radio real willing to give me their social security number. So we were crushing it. I mean, we were grossing two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a month and it was insane and then it just stopped. And so I had just renewed all of the of the contracts with the radio stations at a much lower cost. So this is, this is, um, it's paid advertising on Saturday and Sunday, right? You get a half hour show. It's like an infomercial, but you're an informational right. show. You're not really trying to sell somebody. You're just like, Hey, this is happening. This is happening. If you want some help, let us know. And, um, and then it, yeah, just all went away. So I lost everything. I, I lost my savings. My house was a quarter million dollars upside down when two years before I had like 30% equity in it on a, on a $600,000 house. I mean, it was a, a hot mess. I got a divorce and it, I'm just, it just was obliterated. And for the first time in my life, I didn't know what I was going to do next. And a buddy of mine from Nashville, who is a producer and an engineer, a very gifted and talented dude, when I had told him, he kind of had, he, he had a thing w- with me and my wife in the sense that he loved our relationship and he couldn't believe that it was possible for a human to just behave like themselves around their girl, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> he, he wasn't that kind of guy. And so I remember having to call him and tell him that my wife left and it was kind of like trying to break it to your kids. You know what I mean? I don't mean yeah. that in a condescending way, but I was really concerned about totally it. And my heart it. hurt. And, and so after this whole thing, we're talking for an hour and a half and he's like, so when are you moving back to Nashville? And I was just like, dude, I just got through telling you my wife left. What the hell's wrong with you? You know, he's like, I'm serious. Come back. Let's produce some records. And I didn't sleep for three days after that. And I, and then it hit me because he was right. I was like, I got nothing else to do. And this was me trying to adult, you know, in the electronics thing and in the, um, and doing a great job in electronics and doing a great job in financing. And then it came to me that I can get this kind of chaos in doing something I love to do because I, I love building a business, but I hated mortgage consumers. You know, I, I couldn't stand the customers. I just thought they just so all they wanted was a better rate than their neighbor. And it was terrible. So I, I moved back to Nashville. I didn't have hardly a dime. We started producing records and it became very clear to me when we were working with a, you know, a string of very gifted independent artists, they were all coming in Anthony and blowing and we weren't cheap. Like my guy is on 70 million records. My partner was at the time. So we're charging 3000 bucks a song and they're spending 30 grand on a record. Well, they're coming in and that's the whole budget. They spend the whole budget on the record and there's zero for marketing. And that's what I wanted to get at. Right. Cause it's like, this is so interesting to me. Like, you know, you're, 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 you're you start off as the artist, you're out there doing the thing. You, you, you pivot, you're in the, you're in the, uh, the business world, you're doing electronics, you're doing mortgage, you're, you're, and then you come in the back into music and you're seeing the parallels now. You're seeing yeah. A, the need for a list, right, to, to yep. market things to, and B, you're seeing, like I'm going to read something, I, I read something, or maybe, I don't know if I read it or if I heard it, I was doing some research before the interview, and you were saying that uh, you didn't like working with mortgage consumers because they were um, 
they spent more time researching flat screen TVs than in their mortgage terms, I think is what yeah. you said. Right? Yeah. So, but so this is what I want. So, when it comes to the same thing when you're working with artists, what's the flat screen TV of the artist world? Like, what are they blowing their money? What are they spending too much time thinking about that they sh- where they should be thinking about other things? From a that's easy. I'll tell you what. Like every record label or every record contract that's ever existed since we created record labels looks the same. Whatever the amount of money is that they're going to give for that artist, five percent of it is allocated for making the record. Ninety-five percent of it is for marketing and promotion because you're promoting art and art has no deep rooted fundamental value in society until enough people like it. And so you have to be able to have the money to turn enough people onto it, to give it a chance to blossom. And every single indie artist to this day is flip-flopping that recipe. I liken it to flip, imagine flip-flopping the cake and the, or the salt and the sugar amounts in a cake. (laughs) <laughs> right, it's not gonna work, and, and and so they're they're blown away why nobody listens to their music, and it's like, man, instead of doing a ten or twelve song CD, which has always been your dream, do three and spend the rest of that budget on marketing, and you'll see the needle move if you if you got, you know, a, 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 some modicum of 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 intelligence on how to do it, you know. Okay, so listen, I gotta tell you something. Like, I, I was a reporter for Billboard magazine for around seven plus years, right? Talked to a yes. lot of the music, a lot of the, lot of the business side of things. I, didn't, I wasn't writing about music. I was writing about business. And I can't tell you how many times when you start asking real questions of people about the business of being an artist and the business of being in music, and you get the same sort of pandering answer of like, it's all, it's all about the music. The song's got to come first, all that kind of stuff. True to a degree, right? Yep. But that's like saying, what's the key to a good house? And, and they tell you about the basement. Like it's the foundation. You got to build on top of that. It's so refreshing to hear someone Honestly, say, look, it's it's not. You don't put all the money into creating the music. You got to have enough money to actually promote and and work the music afterwards. You don't hear yeah. nearly enough of that in this business. And I and I got to and this is from the heart. I think it's really refreshing to hear you say something like that. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, the proof in the pudding when I talk about that to artists is, and usually they're just blown away by this too, is look at Guns and Roses. I mean, Appetite for Destruction changed my life. That's one of the greatest records I've ever made. And in the record industry, I still think to this day, it's the best solo, the best debut album, best-selling debut album in the history of the record industry, like 30 million copies. But it was dead on arrival because it wasn't on the radio. It wasn't on MTV. And they were, depending on who you talk to in that camp, one year or one week, I'm sorry, one day or one week away from being dropped by Geffen when Tom Zutow went in and said, man, just flex your music mogul muscle and get somebody at MTV to play this freaking video. I believe in these guys. And that's what he did. And that's the story where they dropped um, Welcome to the Jungle at 3 a.m. on a Saturday, which is really a Sunday, you know, Saturday night at a time when maybe 8 million people were watching uh, MTV and it blew up. But no, it, that art, you can't, you, you don't have to like it, but you can't argue the value of that art, but it didn't do anything for a year until somebody heard it. That's interesting. So now, and, and how much of that do you deal with now at, uh, at Daredevil? I mean, do you have to like, are, are the people that come into you already getting that or do you have to educate them on this idea as part of your process and working with them? It varies. I, I got to educate some of them um, and some, but there's a lot of artists out there now that are becoming really, really savvy. And um, at least in the sense that they understand marketing, some of them are really good at social media and, and they know how to grow and they know how to be, to promote, but there's still that stopgap of 
digital marketing that they haven't gotten their head around yet, which is a very, as much as, which it seems weird, right? Because they're so good at socials, but they don't understand the digital marketing aspect of it. And that is, that's the future. I, you, you, artists aren't breaking on radio anymore, you know? So how's it going to happen? And you have, an, you have an industry that, as crazy as this sounds, in the last couple of years has had to come face to face with the reality and deal with the interruption of the internet, where every other industry had to deal with it back in the 90s. The, the record labels didn't, the music industry didn't. There was still only two choices to listen to music. Listen to what you bought, listen to the radio. We had a pricing hiccup with Napster, but that didn't affect the marketing pipeline. We still had huge records in the 2000s. It wasn't until 2007, January 28th or 29th, I'm sorry, um, June 28th or 29th, I believe, when the iPhone 4 came out, the crack started to show. Then Spotify's invented in 2009. It doesn't come to America till 2011. It takes five years to get ramped up and to get the market in. And here we are, right? We're just, we're, they're just getting their head around this. And so um, I see, I see the future very clearly, Anthony. And you want to know where the crystal ball is? Hollywood. Explain. So Hollywood and the record industry are very, very similar industries with very different products. So the similarities are they're about the same age-ish. They both make artistic intellectual property. And for almost 100 years, they have been promoting that artistic intellectual property on broadcast platforms. Hollywood is a little farther along the journey of doing business as they've always done it, but then also behaving like Amazon. Okay. Uh, they're a little farther than that. So what did you, so Netflix is the Spotify of Hollywood. Netflix starts out in the beginning when they decided to do a digital streaming platform. Hey, we can make some money over here. They go to the network heads. They go to the, um, the studio heads. And if you remember Netflix in the beginning as a streaming service, it was really crappy titles. They didn't get good stuff. But then as they started to make more and more money, all of a sudden they started to get better titles. All of a sudden they got friends. All of a sudden they got the office and they have all these titles. Well, Netflix understood we're teaching them that this is where the money is going to be made. And number two, we're teaching them how to do it. And so it's not going to be too long before they take their titles back. Why shouldn't they make 100% of the revenue that the traffic creates? Because today it's all about the traffic. It's not about the network. It's not about the record label. It's about the traffic, which is why the power shift is changing for indie artists. And so to the crystal ball part of it, you saw Netflix seven years ago begin to create original content because they knew that they, they had a business platform that was built on rented property. They didn't own any of the intellectual property that was generating the revenue for them. So they did it and they did it brilliantly. The Emmy Awards were just announced for 2020. They got 160 Emmy Awards. They're crushing every major network in a big way. Yeah. But <clears throat> here's where the difference in the product matters. It still costs millions of dollars to make a movie or a TV show. And there's 40,000 uploads a day to Spotify. So Spotify can't do what Netflix did. Same thing as Spotify, right? Nobody goes to Spotify for Spotify. They go to Spotify for Taylor Swift. They go to Spotify for U2. They go to Spotify for their favorite artists. And, and they, tried, they tried doing that whole exclusive thing. That didn't really work out. That was a bad It doesn't work out. And I'll tell you what, let me, let, let's, put a, let's put another exclamation point on that. Distribution doesn't matter anymore. 
So it's whether it's on Spotify or Amazon or Apple, it doesn't matter. And here's my proof to support my statement. The Jay-Z record, 444, came out about two years ago. He hadn't put out a record in like eight or nine years. He highly anticipated. He's got a boatload of demand. Jay-Z owns uh, Tidal. And so in an effort to up the subscriptions at Tidal, he blocks every other DSP for one week. The only place you can get that highly anticipated record is on Tidal. And I'm sure that he raised those subscription levels. I'm sure he moved the needle on that. But the bigger story was 1 million pirated downloads of 444 in a week. This is not... Yeah, exactly. It's an attention economy, right? Distribution is easy. Attention is hard. Exactly. And and this isn't 1 million people that just got through hacking into the Pentagon and then hacking into Twitter. These are just fans. This wasn't wasn't hard to do. Yeah, it wasn't hard to do. So, so how, how, you know, how big, how important is it that Spotify has a brand name like that? Or, you know, when, when you see, you see JLo just left her, her major label and went to an indie label. You see, uh, when Taylor Swift, you know, figures out, man, when I put out a new record, Spotify is going to get a billion streams in a month and it's going to generate this amount of revenue. If I put it on my own server, they're going to find it there too. Why shouldn't I just get all the money? And before the artist had to have the record label because the record label could get them to radio. And that was the only way you were going to get in front of a new audience. And now the record labels have to play ball with the artists and the, the, the tables are turning because it's the traffic that creates the revenue and the artists have the brand name that creates the traffic. Whereas before the labels could manufacture the traffic by making sure you got on radio for better or for worse. Well, no, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. It's a really great point. Cause I was going to ask you a little bit when you were mentioning the Hollywood uh, example about this, the sort of debate around the windowing strategy, right? Like um, do you hold your music from Spotify first and put it like on your own server to get your diehard fans to get the first shot at it before you make it available to something that pays a little bit differently like Spotify? Spotify. Sometimes they want you to buy the album like physically before or download it or something like that before they make it available to streaming. I think all of that still kind of focuses on your distribution comment where it's like once it's out, it's out. Yeah, I think, and I think it's different for every artist. Like it depends on the demand that that artist has created and you can do value add packaging and stuff like that or put something behind a paywall uh, on your website and, and generate some revenue that way before it goes out to the masses. I think that that could, that that could happen and probably it would be more effective maybe for a mid-level artist than it would be for somebody like Taylor Swift who's probably just going to get hacked you know, and, and not be able to to hide it. But just to finish that thought with Hollywood, I mean, Mm -hmm. what did you see happen in Hollywood? You know, NBC's got their own streaming service now. Disney plus does ABC, HBO. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen in the music industry. They don't need Spotify. And I was surprised a couple of days ago to hear that like Spotify and universal renewed their deal um, to go a little bit longer. But I'm thinking that, that's because Spotify and Universal are going to end up becoming the same company. Uh, so you're saying that 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 well either that or that the labels somehow create their own streaming services. Well, I think they're going to create their own streaming. So so in yeah. like to Spotify because because of the different product, right? Spotify can't do what Netflix did. They can't create enough original content or purchase enough licenses to replace the revenue they're going to lose when the labels start pulling their titles, okay? So and imagine if Spotify, like, say, bought Universal, right? What's Warner and Sony going to think about the data they're getting on Spotify and their and their artists' position on playlists and stuff? It's going to 
it's not going to work, you know? So, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, I'm a little yeah. old school uh, in terms of, you know, my, I have a, um, I'm trying to find the most diplomatic way of putting this. I, I have a, I have a, um, I guess a bias against labels running their own services because I've, I've never really seen them successfully create a customer fan facing service. They've, they've, they've done a, they create customer fan facing products, but I've never really seen them successfully create that service. Like they always relied on a record store or they relied on Apple or they relied on Spotify to a certain extent now and things like that. It'd be really interesting to see if they can actually pull it off. Cause there's enough cross pollinization of like, people leaving the digital music world to get jobs at labels and whatnot, where that maybe that might change. But historically it hasn't been as, as, as easy to say, Hey, come here and listen to all this, all the universal music. You know, it, it just, for some reason, never really worked. Well, that, that, first of all, that bias is well-founded. I support that. Number one. <laughs> and, and, and number two, I can promise you they're going to screw it up at first. Okay. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is step one is that in today's world, you need to know, that you need the data, right? That you need the list. And then step two is, which is another chasm that you have to cross, is what to do with it, right? right. So I'll give you an example of like the, the, the vast difference. Because I think like it's probably not going to be the major labels that make the changes. It's going to be companies like mine that do it, that, that, that are thinking about this in a different way that be, all of a sudden becomes so big that the labels either have to purchase them or you know they have to play ball with them somehow or they just stay indie. And maybe the, the, the majors end up dying a slow death, but the, the, um, you know, the data is, is paramount. No, like we had a a very well-funded indie label in Nashville that had three artists, a billionaire owned them. One of the artists is a big star. She's a female. There's another female artist on that label a couple years ago. And there was a male artist on that label. They were looking at one of our artists that we're working with. So their male artist, their three P one radio singles in on that artist. So with, if you include radio tour, you're easily looking at 1.8 to $2 million in a hole. Okay. And he's got a 20 got a Instagram following of 20,000 people with a solid engagement rate of 3.8%. And the artists that they were looking at from us had um, 20,000 followers on Instagram and a competitive engagement rate of about 3.4%. And we did that for 20 grand. So where does, the, I guess, lastly, let me, I got two Final questions for you. One is we keep we come we kind of keep on coming back to the funding part a little bit, and I don't want to turn this into any kind of pitch about us and world teams and what we do. I mean that is the area that we operate in. But just tell yeah. me a little bit about about you know you can. There's a lot of what you can do as an artist independently outside the major label system. You can work with companies like yourselves to do uh, more of the digital marketing. There's all kinds of self recording capabilities and whatnot and, and, and such right now. But the funding part, people still seem to. Uh, go back to the, you know, traditional, either the label advance or the publisher advance and whatnot and whatnot. Taking us out of the equation for a second, like what are there, are there more options or, or is there more danger even in finding funding options outside those more traditional areas for an artist to be able to pay for these things that they can now do on their own as opposed to through a label? <clears throat> so here's my thought on that. The, the numbers don't lie because the numbers can't talk, Right. So the more that artists, we already see a bunch of indie artists that are becoming more savvy in the marketplace. The proof in that is in 2018, we had a 46% increase in streams on Spotify in the United States, but none of that increase came from the top 500 streamed songs. 
So the mathematical breakdown on that is, you know, we have a 52-week year, but in the music industry, it's a 50-week year because the the charts are shut down, as you know, from Billboard for two weeks for Christmas. So the top 500 stream songs are your top 10 songs. Where did that 46% increase come from? They're all indie artists that are figuring out how to get in front of a new audience. So the more that that when we're, when we're doing digital data, I mean, the, the point about digital marketing is, is the ROI comes in the form of data immediately. And so you can start to build up these, you know, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 worth of data. Now, if you're an investor, and there's always been plenty of people who want to invest in artists back in the day when that was like throwing a dart in the dark and they did it out of sheer love for the artist. But now we can show how the needle moves and we can show predictability and we can show, Hey, this, these are the numbers right here. This is what's going to happen because now we can measure it. And because we can measure it, we can manage it. So I think it's going to become in the very near future, a lot easier for artists to get a hold of money because you know what, if I've got an artist, that's great, that's compelling and that's willing to work, then we can plug them into a system of guys who are and, 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 and girls, investors who are, are pretty certain that over, let's say, uh, over a, a over a vast conglomerate of artists that they're going to make money, right? So, getting money, I think, for labels, getting money for, I mean, it's no different than investing in Spotify or something. It's about how many members do we have? You know, what's the what's the lifetime value? Like, it's all of a sudden all that becomes possible in the digital era. And then I think you know, lots of different companies like yours are going to benefit from that as they see as they see the, the, the tables turn and they start to fill in these spots and they're like, hey, we've got a better way for you to do this. We can help you out here. And the free market begins to take over and we begin to cook up new ways to do it. But I, you know, the entertainment industry before was just such a, a, a low percentage shot that I don't know if you saw the recent article from Daniel Leck a couple days ago in Spotify, but b- basically saying the top 40 is dead mm-hmm. and that it's now the top 43,000. And that article, which I'm going to do a podcast on, was largely about how the middle class is arriving in the music industry and the big, big elite upper class is pretty much dead. And um, so there, there's just it now, instead of being, you know, all the major labels back in the heyday had 500 artists each, but only 25 of them made any money. So you, you had a 5% chance of making it after you got the record deal and a 95% chance of not making it. Now, much more even numbers, the more savvy we get, the, the you know, people like our company, you know, different people that are understanding the digital platform like we are, are working hard to get artists to, to, to buy into this and do it. And then they see the needle move. I mean, we're able to do amazing things. And, the, the spot, and Facebook just changed the video platform. Did you know about that? Yes, exactly. Crazy. Now you can monetize on Facebook and it looks like right. YouTube. Hello. And now we're com- we have a competitor to YouTube. So how's Facebook going to get like Tim McGraw to recreate his YouTube channel on his, on his Facebook page? Paying a little more money on, on this per stream. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What I really love about, and this is what we'll, I think we should close on here, is this idea of the, the, the formerly it was always that top 20, I'll say 25% or, you know, 20% of artists. That's, those are the ones that sort of quote unquote made it. And as a result, those are the ones that got all the attention by the infrastructure of the music business. Everyone focused on those and kind of ignored to a certain extent, everyone else. And what I really love about where we are now is that that's, that's changing. There's more and more companies like yourselves, like ourselves, who's 
who's, who's built upon serving that other 80% in a way that's that's meaningful, right? In a way that actually helps. And, and you don't yep. have to be Guns N' Roses or, you know, you don't have to be Beyonce to have, you know, a, a, a functional career in the music business. There should be options for you. And, and it's because the traditional music business hadn't paid as close attention to them that allows companies like ourselves to bubble up to, to fill that void. And I think we have the great. advantage, brother. We yeah, have the exactly. advantage. It's going to take them a long time to figure this out. And then when I'm talking about like this conglomerate stuff, it's not a pipe dream. Like our, our podcast, the Climb Show Music Business Podcast. And I want to um, end with you plugging that, please. So please explain, explain the climb, what it is and, and, and how it helps. Sure. Uh, I mean, we, uh, for about four and a half years now, my myself and my co-host, Brent Baxter, who you just uh, interviewed, mm-hmm. great interview, by the way. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, he's a hit songwriter. We he, he handles the art, the craft, and the business of songwriting, and I'm handling like music marketing and artist development and what we have to do to be seen as an indie artist and to get their heads straight and reframe everything, and that's what the podcast is all about. It's super informational. We don't do a lot of interviews. Um, it's mostly just us, you, you know, digging in and talking common sense about what's happening and changing people's minds about the way they need to approach their marketing. But, but here's the thing, like what I was going to say about the podcast was by itself, like we do, we do well on the downloads, but we don't have enough downloads per month. We have enough downloads per month where if we had a relationship with somebody to monetize it, it would be sexy for them because we had a relationship, but to attract an unknown brand that would want to, uh, to advertise and, and monetize our podcast. We don't have that. We're not that big yet. Um, it takes, you know, about 20,000 downloads a month to, to, to get on just on the radar screen for that. But we just joined American songwriter magazines podcast network. So they've put together like 15 different podcasts on a podcast network that all have content that's relevant and personal to their audience. And collectively that podcast is super interesting to a whole lot of brands. And so everybody can monetize. Do you see how we can do that with indie artists too? Absolutely. And investors and all that. It's like so exciting. Exactly. It is. I got to tell you, we're recording this for people listening. We're recording this right now on a Friday, Friday morning, my time, a little, little later in the day, uh, uh, your time. But I, I wish we had done this on a Monday because I'm like jazzed. Like I'm ready to get back to work with it. You know what I mean? Like you kind of got me going, man. Like I'm like, I'm all like uh, hyped up right now. So this has been a really great. I love great, it, dude. Um, it's, it's such a good, it's such a good time to be an indie artist, but you know, you listen, you've got to be a student of the game. You can't just, you're not just going to be a great singer. That's going to get their shot anymore. You know, um, it's just not going to happen. You, you've right. got to, you, you, that's why we called it the client, creating leverage in the music business. You need leverage. You know, you got to show what you can do. So we need to go uh, have a cocktail sometime. How often do you get to Nashville? Not often as I'd like, particularly now, but uh, let, let, I, you, you're absolutely right. We need to have a good, um, maybe a brandy old fashioned if we're going to go old yes, here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm, I still drink old fashioned. <laughs> I drink them all the time. I drink whiskey old fashioned, but I love them. Yeah. I drink them every night. I'm, 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 I'm staying true to the mothership, brother Anthony. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so listen. Daredevil Productions, The Climb Podcast, anywhere else that people can find you, follow you, uh, interact? Yeah. Uh, you know, The Climb Show is on on uh, American Songwriter Podcast Network. It's americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast. It's called The Climb, C-L-I-M-B. It is an acronym, so you might have to put the dots in to search for it. And Daredevil Production, production is singular, uh, daredevilproduction.com. You can find me there. And the socials are, are uh, you know, Daredevil Production on Facebook, Daredevil underscore production on YouTube, or excuse me, on um, Instagram, and, and the Climb's got socials too. So you can learn about everything we're doing there. 
Well, thank you very much for being on the show and talking to us today. It's been great. I, I really hope this is the first of many conversations we have in the future, my friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. To, one more thing. One more thing. Yes, 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 please. Yeah, I've, go. I've got a free informational download I forgot to mention that mm. is called 21 Biggest Reasons You Don't Have More Fans and How to Rectify That. It's free. Just go to giftfromjohnny.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y, giftfromjohnny.com, and tell us where to send it. And it's, it's absolutely yours. Get your head thinking right. So the biggest thing you got to be doing now is asking the right questions, and then you're going to get the right answers. All right, great. Listen, it's been a great time talking to you. We will talk again soon. Thanks very much. And, Thank you, um, Anthony. Have a good, uh, have, have a good safe, pandemic-free uh, weekend. <laughs> you too, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for listening. To keep up with Johnny, you can check out his social media profiles linked below, and you can always tune into the Climb podcast to get insights from both him and Brent. We'll see you in two weeks with another brand new episode. Until then, take care. <laughs>